0: Well, as we've pointed out before, Hebrews is a sermon. It is a book of the Bible that was a letter, which was originally a sermon and then put into words on paper. It is one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Last week, we were talking about one of the challenges of preaching. It's a challenge that I have as a preacher every week, but it's also a challenge I believe that the author of Hebrews had. And that's the, the challenge and the difficulty of knowing your audience and knowing how to address various groups of listeners that are within your audience. Anytime a, a pastor or preacher preaches a sermon, there are three types of people in his audience. First, there are many who believe in Jesus Christ. They are those who have, bro- who have been broken by their own sin. In, in their mind and in their heart, they recognize how far they've fallen God's righteous standard. And how just God would be to pour out His wrath on them in any moment. But by God's grace, they have received the free gift of eternal life that was made available to them through Jesus Christ who died in their place. Who took the full weight of their sin upon Himself. And who bore God's wrath so that they might have His own righteousness. There are many who have received God's salvation and now are enjoying a life of following Jesus. But there's a second group of any given audience. These are people who know that they are not Christians. You you may toy with the idea of following Jesus, but you have either not made up your mind on this, or you've not made your mind on whether you love your sin more than Jesus. And this group of listeners also has within it many who have been convinced about the, the intellectual, intellectual facts. That's a big word. Intellectual facts of the gospel. That is, they understood that what Jesus did on the cross. And, and they even intellectually believe, many of them, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But they have missed heaven by 18 inches because in their heart they refused to bow down Jesus as the king. And today you might find yourself in that category. Maybe you're examining Jesus and, and considering you know, who, who is He and do I really believe this? And how much do I love my sin? How much do I think I love this Jesus? And when am I willing to submit to Him? But there's a third group within any audience, and this is the most dangerous of all. The third group consists of those who believe that they're in. They believe that they're saved for one reason or for another, but the eyes of of their mind have been blinded and the enemy keeps them deceived. If you're in this group, you're imitating a form of godliness and you're acting out Christianity, but your trust might be in something else other than Jesus Christ. And I mentioned a few examples of where that trust may lie. Uh, Last week I I mentioned perhaps you're trusting that, that you'll be good enough and that when you get to the other side of heaven, hopefully your good works will outweigh your bad works, and you haven't truly understood what the gospel's all about. Perhaps you're trusting in a prayer that you said to invite Jesus into your heart or some other formula of walking down an aisle or raising your hand when the pastor had everybody's eyes closed. Now, now don't get me wrong. Oftentimes, salvation happens in those moments. And true, genuine faith happens at the same time that a person says a prayer like that. Whether they're led in it or they prayed some prayer of thanks to themselves or, or whether there was maybe you raised your hand and that was the moment that you truly believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that you believe that He died on the cross for your sins. Those, those moments aren't wrong in and of themselves, but if I'm trusting in that thing that I did, then what I'm doing is really I'm trusting a work that I did. And somehow, that, I think, may prove me to God. And what happens is some of us, we are trusting what we're trusting and was never Jesus. But rather, your faith is in a work that you accomplished that you believe somehow made God happy with you. And all this time, your faith has not been in Christ, but in some work that you did that you think earned God's favor. And the end, you will be shocked to find that you did not persevere to the end because you were never truly a Christian in the first place. I think there are millions in our country and around the world, millions upon millions who are in this category, that think they're convinced I'm going to heaven. But they have no idea what Jesus Christ did for them or no idea that they've never trusted Him. And eternity is what's at stake. Eternal damnation and never-ending torment as one endures the wrath of God because of their disobedience. Because they never took seriously the command that Hebrews gives us to consider Jesus. Or everlasting life and true eternal rest because your faith is in Christ alone who paid the price that you could not pay. So Hebrews is a sermon. He recognizes this tension within his audience that some are genuine believers and some are deceived and some are still considering Jesus. And he understands that as he's writing this epistle to this church, that it's filled with believers in Jesus Christ, but it is, he's fully aware that there are some who have one foot out the door. They're suffering persecution for the first time. And some, for some of them, that, tension, that, that persecution is getting intense. And they will fall away and they will not hold fast to Jesus because they have not truly placed their confidence and their hope in Him. And again, there are some within this church that he's writing to, these Hebrews, who are deceived, who also will not enter God's eternal rest because they have misunderstood the Gospel. So as we begin today and we turn to our passage, my question for you is, is, which one are you? You cannot afford to get this wrong. And so I'd like to open in prayer, but I'd like you to pray with me in your heart. And just pray that God would open up the, the, the eyes of, of your mind That you would see with clarity what your relationship is with Him. And ask the Spirit, look, the Lord, if if I'm not truly saved, if there's something that I'm missing and I've not understood the Gospel, Lord, show me that and shed light on that today. And help me to see clearly where I stand in relationship to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. Lord, we ask You that, that You would teach us as we open up Your Word this morning and study it together. Some of Hebrews' words are, are pretty bold and, and pretty uh, difficult. And uh, for many of us, we've lived a life, a decades, an entire lifetime in the church community and never truly had a relationship with Jesus Christ because we've misunderstood the Gospel. There are some who are believers in Jesus Christ and are walking faithfully with Him. And it's my prayer that, that you would take those who have received Christ and that they would grow and that they would be encouraged and, and they would be challenged to continue in that faith and to share the Gospel with others and challenge you to love you daily. To grow in your Word. Father, if there's those here that, that are still considering Jesus, I pray that they would give attention to these words today. Help each one of us not to, to wander off into various things in our mind and our planning of the day, but Lord, might we give attention to Your Word. And, and I pray that You would help us to understand. I pray that You would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and, and Father, soften our hearts and submit ourselves to You. Father, I pray for my friends here. And if there's one here that, that is confused about the Gospel, maybe they think they're in, but, but they don't have a relationship with You, I just pray that You would make that clear to them today. If there's anyone here today that does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that they would see that more clearly than ever before and that today would be the day of salvation. So Lord, take Your Word. Do what You promised that it does. Search our hearts and change us, we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we began a journey down a new spoke on our wheel that we call Hebrews. And the author showed us that not only is Jesus superior to Moses, that Jesus is the greatest of all, but, but Jesus is also superior to Moses. And we're examining this, this line of argument that, uh, of Jesus and, and Moses and, and comparing the two. And like the builder of a building is greater than the building itself, Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is God. And Jesus made Moses. And like the faithful son in a family is greater than a faithful servant within that household, Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's final word from God, we've learned. And Jesus is the only way to God. And so with all of this at stake, the author of Hebrews, he he kind of throws water in the face of his audience, if you will, and says, hey, whoa, whoa, pay attention here. Wake up, guys. I want you to get this. And he throws a really challenging couple verses back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14. He said, For we have come to share in Christ. Well, that sounds like a great statement, right? We've come to share in Christ. Isn't that encouraging? If. Wait, wait, wait. what? What? Author of Hebrews, whoever, whatever your name is. If what? We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Which gets a lot of us thinking, doesn't it? Am I going to hold firm? It, can I lose that salvation? What's he talking about here? Is this something that is my salvation at stake that I've really gained? And what, what's going on here, author of Hebrews? And, and it's a tough passage in Hebrews, but and that word "if" is probably the biggest word in the entire book, one of the biggest words at least. But again, he's not telling the Hebrews that they will lose their salvation if somehow they drop the ball before the end. What he wants them to understand is that some of them were never truly saved from their sin in the first place. And they've got to get that. They have to understand this. The author of Hebrews understands this tension and he doesn't want people who are hearing this sermon, that are hearing this message, to assume wrongly that their eternity is secure because he understands that some people who are hearing these words have never truly trusted in Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, we left with a challenge that he... he uh, leaves off on in chapter 4, verse 1, kind of transitions to the second part of his argument. And he says, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. And the, the, ten, the tense of this verb he uses there in, in verse 1 is what we call a perfect infinitive. Now, you don't have to remember that. I don't expect you to remember that. Um, but I want you to understand what that communicates is this. There may be some, perhaps some of you, who have failed to reach God's rest. Your failure is not because you received God's rest already and then you lose it because of your unfaithfulness. No, the failure to reach God's rest is because one is in a spiritual state where they never entered God's rest in the first place. Do you hear what he's saying? Uh, This is the heart of a preacher who doesn't want anyone who's in his audience to get left behind. And he says, look, God's promise is still available for those who haven't yet received it. And if you know that you haven't trusted Christ, and Hebrews says, let us fear lest you fail to reach the promise of entering God's rest. And if you're considering Jesus, and Hebrews has woken you up to the reality of, of, uh, that, that you've only been going through the motions over this how, last however long it's been, Then let us fear lest you fail to reach the promises of God's rest. And he says, Today is the day of salvation. All right, before we move past verse 1, though, let let me walk us through chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I want to give you a map. Chapter 4 can be kind of tough. I and mean, He goes in a lot of places. He's quoting a couple passages. He's dealing with some concepts that some of us are going, wow, what is happening here? So let's take a little bit of a map and then we'll take our hike through this section of, of the woods together. Chapter 4 is going to continue this idea of receiving God's rest. We'll define that here in a few moments. And he wants us to continue to think through this idea that we will honestly reflect on whether we have received God's rest or not. Hebrews is going to spend the first several verses comparing Jesus, uh, excuse me, comparing the Jews who wandered through the wilderness, he's going to compare them with us. And so there's this this analogy that's happening uh, between the Israelites in the wilderness who died out in the desert and us who are alive today. And the whole analogy hinges on this word rest. And he's going to pick up on this word that comes up over and over and over in Hebrews 4. And it comes up over and over and over in several other passages throughout the Bible. And the whole analogy hinges on that word, but basically he's looking at our need to listen and then respond in obedience that is with faith. And he says, hey, all this talk about rest, it kind of reminds me of what happened in the book of Numbers. History... Is repeating itself. And Todd, here's your, your big German word that we all love, Hausgeschichte, all right. Uh, it, it means history is repeating itself. And I, I remember what happened in the book of Numbers, and that's what's happening today. Let's listen to how he introduces this whole analogy between them and us in verses two and three. He says, For good news came to just came this excuse me, I'm sorry. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As He has said, as I swore My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. So here's this, how this analogy goes throughout these two chapters. In chapter 3, we saw Moses is a faithful servant. Jesus is a greater servant. And more than a servant, Jesus is the Son. Moses led Israel out of slavery. Jesus has freed us from our bondage to sin. An even worse master than Pharaoh in Egypt. And now in chapter 4, Israel was offered good news. Have we heard that somewhere before? Yeah. We are offered good news. And we have been offered good news of an even greater rest than what was offered to Israel. Those who wandered in the wilderness, they heard the promise. And they didn't receive any benefits from the good news because they didn't respond in faith. Now, here, he's going to take Psalm 95, which we looked at last week. We touched on that last half of Psalm chapter 95, which talks about this rest. And he's going to show that how today, just like these Israelites failed to enter that rest and receive any benefit from it because of their lack of faith, we also have heard the promise. And we too will also be subject to God's wrath if we don't respond in faith. If we don't trust Christ and Christ alone. And then Israel's rest, he says, was patterned after God's rest in creation. Again, he's going to pick up an Old, Old Testament passage where that word rest is mentioned. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And, and this time he's going to show how today, just like the Israelites, their rest was based on god's rest in creation our rest also is patterned after god's design which he established from the very beginning of the world and it's been god's design throughout all of human history god wants you to enter his rest and then this section of hebrews is going to conclude with our second warning passage if you remember how many passages are there in the whole book of hebrews that have this warning passage i see it how much skippy Twelve. Uh, not quite. Five. Five. There we, good, good. Uh, five warning passages. This is the second of those five warning passages. We're faced with a choice. Obedience through faith in Christ or disobedience by failing to believe in God's Son. The Israelites failed to enter the rest that God offered to them because of their disobedience. So how much more? We're not just dealing with Moses, but we're dealing with God's Son Himself. We're not just dealing with a servant, we're dealing with Jesus Christ. How much more, shall we, if we fail to enter God's rest, will we fall by the same kind of obedience? That is, if we fail to listen and respond in faith, how much more will we also suffer God's wrath? Having rejected not just the law of Moses, not just an entry into a promised land, but Jesus Christ Himself. This whole analogy is introduced in verses one through three, where he demonstrates that God's way to experience the blessing of God's rest is through faith, specifically faith in Jesus Christ. This shouldn't surprise us, right? We've heard that before. Hopefully, you've heard that before. Um, It's the same thing that Jesus Himself offered when He walked on this earth. Do you remember what He said in Matthew chapter eleven, verses twenty-eight through thirty? "Come to Me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you." Rest. There's our word again. Take my yoke upon you. What's a yoke? You put two oxen and they plow a field together, right? Not, not the yoke and an egg but this is a yoke, it's a piece of wood that sits on the oxen's shoulders. And, and they go through a field and they, they would put a, a young oxen that wants to just you know go at it and, and waste all his energy on that first row and a, a, an experienced oxen that says, okay, we're going to go through this field together and I'm going to teach you, little whippersnapper, how we're going to do this because I can't keep up with you and you're not going to be able to keep up with yourself unless you give yourself a good pace like I am. And so they put these two oxen together and they would be yoked together and they'd plow that field And they'd get the job done without wearing themselves out. And there was a training process where the old ox would train the younger ox. And Jesus says, take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. That's who's walking beside us. Learn from Me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is easy is light. And that's the promise that Jesus gives to you. God's way of experiencing His rest has always been through faith. Through believing Him at His Word. Well, when is this rest? There have been a lot of lectures given over whether God's rest in this passage is, is a present reality, or is, is it a state of being that I experience now, or is it, is it a future promise of something that I can't experience today, and in this lifetime but i experience in heaven or is it both is it a present reality that's offered to us literally right now in this age and something we experience more fully later on and i believe hebrews answers that question for us first notice in verse 3 how he states for we who have believed that rest and the verb the verb is a, a present tense uh, faith Faith in Christ results in a present tense right now receiving of God's rest. In the words of Matthew, come to Jesus and He will give you rest. It's not just a promise of heaven in the future. It is that, but it's a guarantee of heaven in our hearts now. God's rest that you experience today means that you are finally in right relationship with Him. You're in right relationship with the Lord because He no longer sees your sin but instead, He sees you in light of the righteousness which Jesus transferred to your account when you put your faith in Him. God's rest that you experience today means that you finally cease from striving. You cease from having to always prove yourself to God. You cease striving after perfection. You cease carrying the burden of having to earn your way to God when He's already provided it it for you. God's rest that you experience today means that you find rest in your soul and joy in a life filled with following Him. And it's a present state that people of faith receive now. But with Jesus as our hope, it's also one day, it finds its culmination when we finally are set free not only from the penalty of sin, and not only from the power of sin in our lives today, but also one day we will be set free from the very presence of sin in our lives altogether. And we will be made perfect as we stand before Him. God's rest that we receive through faith is both a present reality and a culmination of all of God's promises. And God's rest is a beautiful symbol in this passage of the whole process of God's salvation in your life, in my life, and in the life of the church. You see, those who have believed in Jesus, not just believe that He exists, not just believe that He died on a cross. Not even just believe that He rose from the dead. You can know all these facts. You can, they're historical. They happened, And you can believe that happened. But if you have never trusted Christ Himself to save you from your sins, then you have not entered that rest. And so those who have believed enter that rest, and those who harden their hearts, in the words of Psalm 95, shall not enter His rest. But the author of hebrews it, it picks up on a couple other instances where this word is rest is used in the old testament and, and next he goes all the way back to genesis chapter 2 and he points out to the fact points to the fact that this rest that they were talking about this state in which we are rightly related to god our creator it has been something that has been a part of god's plan from the very beginning that when god created us he wanted us to be in relationship with him And I agree with many commentators who have made an observation about the beginning of Genesis. You see, on day 1, there was an evening and there was morning. And so also on day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6 of God's creation, there was evening and there was morning. But in chapter 2, verses 1-3, through God changes the pattern in this passage. In the culmination of the account of creation, God breaks the pattern of the first six days. Everything was finished and God rested from the work He had done. The seventh day was blessed and He made it holy. And there is no mention in the creation story of morning and evening on the seventh day. Many have observed that God's rest, His work was finished. Does He start it all over the next week? Does God start His work of creation? No, that's an Egyptian concept. That's what they believed in all the nations that were teaching Israel. Hey, come worship our gods. And and every day is the same. And you work, and you work, and you work, and you work. And salvation is the same. And you work, and you work, and you work, and you work. And God says, no, I finished finished it. My work is done. And He rested on the seventh day. And, And there's this picture. Many have observed that God's rest, it continues on. And the benefits of God completing His work don't end. God's rest is not confined to a single location. God's rest is not confined to a single point in time, but it is shared with all of those who obey through faith. And David in Psalm chapter 95 and Hebrews chapter 4 in our present passage, they seem to pick up on this from Genesis chapter 2. Watch how both passages capitalize on that use of the word today. In verse 6, he notes how the Israelites failed to enter God's rest. Why? Because they received good news. But they didn't receive its benefits because they did not were not united in faith. Now, Genesis chapter two, if if Genesis chapter two verse two was the end of God's rest, or if it was if the wandering in the wilderness was the end of the offer of God's rest, or if when they came into the promised land and they they, Joshua conquered uh, the, the land of Canaan, if that was the final rest, then there wouldn't be something that continues or for others who do respond in faith. And this is what Hebrews is telling us. You see, Moses died in 1406 B.C. David was king 400 years later. And 400 years after the Israelites entered into the Promised Land, David writes Psalm chapter 95. And he says, today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews goes on to point out that if the conquest under Joshua was the culmination of God's rest, of God's plan for for bringing us into right relationship, if that was the end of it when the Israelites went in, then why does David talk about it 400 years later and offer today for you to accept God's rest? Why do today we challenge people to trust Jesus Christ and receive the rest that He offers for them if it was something that was finished long ago? And so Hebrews is pointing out that this right relationship, this, this standard of rest that God wants you to experience is offered to you. Hebrews goes on to point out um, that today the people responding in faith today are experiencing that same rest uh, I was talking to my wife and she was sharing a story about her first her uh, great-grandfather uh, they were in Kansas he was a farmer and um, uh, tough, tough days I mean you head west and the frontier is a, a tough land to, to clear to make a farm to make a living you're building a house a family. Uh, cities are far away. Doctors are far away. I mean, a lot of the things that, that they had experienced in the east in the, 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 co- the colonies and eventually the original states moved to this new land and it, it, it was tough work. And uh, Angie's great-grandmother wanted one thing. She wanted running water in her house. A toilet in the house. Didn't have to go out to an outhouse. Uh, a vanity. A, a sink that she could wash her her, her hair and her hands. You know, you know what sinks do. She wanted this so bad. She raised chickens, and she took the egg money and she kept saving it. And she'd get eggs for the family, and she'd go sell all the rest, of the leftovers. And for I don't know how long, months, years. I think it was years. She saved up this egg money, put it aside, put it aside, put it aside. And finally, had enough to experience the rest, the benefits of having indoor plumbing, of having a toilet in the house, not having to go out in the snow in the middle of the winter to use an outhouse, having a sink with water, running water right there to, to wash your face and your hands and the other things that sinks do. And they ordered it, they got it, the sink and the vanity were sitting outside, and she had a heart attack. Never got to experience it. Never got to enjoy water in the house and uh, indoor plumbing. And Angie's great grandfather's heart broke. He couldn't bring himself to install those, and so they sat out there for decades and decades. Eventually, became a target of rocks from kids. There's porcelain probably out in that field today. You see, there's a lot of people who like that have a promise of rest. And they see the benefits of, of what God offers to them. And just like this indoor plumbing was offered to this family who wanted this just this beautiful thing that, that we take for granted today, they worked and they worked and they worked and they worked at it. And it's as if someone decades before had said, hey, i got this wagon here and i got this extra set of plumbing and let's install it right now. And, and No, no, I'm going to work for this for several years. I'm going to save up my egg money. That wouldn't be smart, would it? Well, you see, Jesus, He offers us rest. He says this isn't something you have to work a lifetime for. This isn't something you have to prove yourself to me because you can never do that. And you're going to come to the end of your life having seen this promise of what God offers and what can be shared in, in His heavenly glories, but when you spend an entire lifetime of working and working and working and working and pursuing it after by your own strength, you'll find yourself like that woman who never receives the benefits of what she worked so hard for. Because Jesus Christ already paid the price. Jesus Christ already accomplished all the work. And He offers it to you Freely. And so that brings us to verse 9 and 10. And we asked ourselves the question of who brings this rest? We've, I've already answered that already. The obvious answer is Jesus. He promised us this in Matthew. Come to me and I will give you rest. But I want to share something with you that I've never seen before in these next verses, This is the kind of stuff that just gets my heart pumping and my mind racing. I, I, love, I love studying Scripture and finding things that you've read through hundreds of times and then going, wow! god's word is so amazing It's so wonderful look at hebrews what hebrews says in verse 9 i don't think i've ever understood this verse until this week he says so then there remains a sabbath rest for the people of god simple right I've always read that verse as talking about the Sabbath day and figured that that it had something to do with this pattern of rest that we find in Christ which was foreshadowed in the commandment that God gave to Israel to rest every Saturday. But guess what? The word that he uses for Sabbath here, that's not the word that Hebrews uses. The, The word that's used here in Hebrews, in fact, this is the only time in the New Testament that this specific word is used. The author of Hebrews, he probably coined the word himself, uh, doing a cool thing that you can do with Greek verbs, but that's for another time. The, the point is that he does not use the normal word for Sabbath. You might ask, well, why would he do that? You see, the New Testament is written in what language? Greek. The Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. Good. And there's another instance where we find the normal word for Sabbath replaced by an unusual word, a very special word, and it happens back in the Old Testament with the Hebrew. And Moses does this. Moses does this very same thing on a handful of occasions in Exodus and Leviticus when he wanted to make a special point about the Sabbath day being a day of solemn rest. A day of celebration a day that's special. There seems to be an emphasis on this day of rest being a time of very special celebration for the person. And two of the handful of times that Moses does this, the first time is when he introduces the concept of Sabbath to Israel. They've been out of Egypt for one week, and the first time he says, tomorrow is a special day. And he uses a different word than the normal word for seven or Sabbath. Sabbath just means seven Seventh day. And, and so he uses this word to say this is a very special celebration. That's one, the first time he uses it. But there's a couple other instances where Moses takes the normal word for Sabbath and he switches it out. And he uses this, this idea of Sabbath of Sabbaths. And two of the handful of times that Moses uses this word are in Leviticus chapter 16 and Leviticus chapter 23. Two passages that I know that you love and you have on your wall. Right? Everybody loves Leviticus. Great book. Trust me. The Word of God is living and active. It's beautiful. It's beneficial. It it benefits you. Well, those are the passages, however, where Moses gives special instructions about a specific day. We call it the Day of Atonement. Today we call it Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement came once a year. And even when the Day of Atonement fell on a weekday, guess what happened? He says, this is a special day. You shall set this day apart. No work. This is not just a Sabbath, but this is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. This is a special celebration for you. They were to enjoy a solemn rest. And it was on this day that once a year, the high priest, what would the high priest do? They would sacrifice his bull and then what? Yeah, he would cross through that curtain. And He would take the blood from the sacrifice. And He would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go through that curtain in the temple into the Holy of Holies and He would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And thus, He would make atonement for all the people. And once a year, this event happened. And that day was supposed to be a day of fasting. It was supposed to be a day of repentance. It was supposed to be a national day in which the people repented of their sin and celebrated God's provision for them in the atonement. And they look forward to the day that God would make final atonement for all the people once for all. Now, the author of Hebrews does the same thing with this word. And he picks up on that special Sabbath. The Sabbath of Sabbaths. And I'm going to give you a peek at next week's passage. Verse 14 is the transition between our current section where we're talking about Moses, Jesus being greater than Moses. And now he's going to go into the section about Jesus being greater than the high priests. And look at verse 14 and look at how he introduces this whole section about Jesus being our great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has, listen to the words here, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And here's what's so cool. Israel celebrated a Sabbath every seven days. But once a year, they had this day that was a Sabbath of Sabbaths. And it fell, it fell on this very solemn day of rest and atonement. And Jesus, who is greater than Moses and greater than all the Old Testament high priests, He didn't just pass through an earthly curtain, an earthly temple to make atonement for our sins, but Jesus passed through the heavens. And he has made atonement once and for all through his work on the cross. It is finished. Because of Jesus, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath of Sabbaths, this special Sabbath for God's people. And that's the point that he's trying to make in verse 9. We still have this very special rest because of Jesus making our atonement. He's our high priest. And that's where he's going to go for this next several chapters. Because Jesus made a way, we have atonement and have reason to celebrate. We have rest, this great rest which people of faith enjoy not only as a present reality, but also will culminate in eternity. And we no longer strive and we no longer work. In fact, the Day of Atonement was a day that was supposed to be no work at all. And part of the reason for that, it was a picture of Jesus' atonement no more work. No more earning your own salvation. No more trying to do everything your way. Submit to what God says is His way and trust Jesus Christ alone. This is salvation by believing in His Son. And so you don't work on the Day of Atonement. Strive and work and have to prove ourselves to God because Jesus completed the work when He made atonement on the cross. I wonder if the author of Hebrews is pointing to two events in verse 10. I I don't know this, but it's a question for me to pursue and maybe you can pursue it too. Where it says that He rested from all His works. I wonder if in the back of his mind he's saying not only, perhaps, perhaps he's hinting at the reality that on the cross, Jesus completed the work of salvation. He declared in His final breath, it is finished. Not only did Jesus, did God rest from His works of creation, but He also rested from His work of salvation because it was done. It's finished. And after His resurrection, He sat down at the right hand of God. And in the end, there's a rest for the people of God today. That brings us to the second warning passage. The second of five warning passages. Again, the author of Hebrews is dealing with this careful tension knowing that many of the people he is writing to are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. But he is also aware that some of these churchgoers were experiencing persecution because of their association with Christ in the church. And they were seriously considering going back to the system of works and sacrifices and temple offerings. The system that they had known before. And they were considering walking away from following Jesus. And then there was also some who probably thought they were saved but they were deceived into thinking that something they were contributing to God had saved them somehow. And these are matters of eternal consequence. And rejecting God's rest that comes through Jesus will have eternal, eternally great ramifications. Greater ramifications than for the Israelites who died in the wilderness. And so, again, Hebrews makes a plea to every one of us in verse 11 and says, Hey, You've got to consider this. You have to ask yourself, where is your heart? What do you believe about Jesus? He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You do not want to find yourself as the object of God's wrath because you rejected Christ intentionally or, oops, I thought I had it, but I misunderstood Verse 11 is not making some sort of plea that you have to work for your salvation. That's what he's arguing against through this chapter. That was accomplished through Jesus. He accomplished the work. He finished the work so that you and I can rest in Him and receive His rest. Rather, his challenge is that you would focus your attention and make sure that you're not one of those that's missed His call. Make sure that you have entered God's rest. George Guthrie says it really well here. He, speaks, uh, he says, it speaks of focused attention toward the accomplishment of a given task. Those of the author's community who have yet to combine faith with hearing the Gospel must rivet their attention on responding in both celebration and obedience to the call of God to enter His rest. They demonstrate their faith by active obedience rather than by passive repose. Some of you, You're on the edge of the Promised Land. It's as if, like the Israelites, you're at Kadesh, and you see the Promised Land to the north. It's right in front of you. In front of you lies peace with your Creator, a yoke that is light, eternal life, and a relief from your strife with God. And behind you lies a path of disobedience and destruction. And then this plea is followed by the famous warning in verse 12. I'm going to read it again. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The, the warning itself has two edges. For those who respond in faith, God's Word is like a surgical instrument. And it it, it goes in places that you just can't see with the human eye normally. Cuts away. Ultimately, brings healing after the surgery is done that we need. And so God's Word acts as this surgical instrument that, that benefits us and cuts away the disease. But for those who respond in disobedience and don't trust Jesus... God's word is like a sword of judgment. In Psalm ninety-five, God's word goes forth, and He pleads with you today to not harden your hearts to what God says. Do not put God to the test, He says. But His word threatens to bring judgment. As one, as as uh, and one must realize that if they fail to enter God's rest, God's word is not some blunt instrument. The Lord not only can discern where bone meets joints, but He discerns the most intricate and, and inside complex part within a man's immaterial person. There have been scholars and philosophers throughout the ages. Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers and philosophers out in the middle of jungles trying to decide what's the soul and what's the spirit and how do you define those two? And God says His Word goes even and, and, and divides that. He knows right where what we can't see is it. God's Word is the Lord can not only discern all these things, but it, he, he, he understands the complex parts of our immaterial nature. He even discerns our very thoughts and our intentions. He knows them. And so beware, lest you find yourself thinking that you can hide your unbelief. We can imitate a form of godliness that deceives everyone around you. Your closest family members might be deceived. And your church friends, and even those that that you hold most dear, but all of us are exposed before God and we try to clothe ourselves and cover up what we don't want others to see or to know, but nothing is hidden from Him and every one of us will stand before Him. My friend, I, I don't know your heart. I don't know where you are at in particular. I can't read your intentions. I can't read the thoughts of your mind. But know that God can. And perhaps today you sense that He's calling you today. And Psalm David says to you today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not put Him to the test by putting it off today. That road is one of disobedience and destruction. But today, turn to Him in faith and celebrate the solemn rest that has come through Jesus who made atonement on your behalf. And dear Christian, you also need to benefit from God's Word. It's not intended to bring judgment for you, but it is an instrument that cuts away all that even we cannot see. And so let us establish ourselves in patterns in our life, in which we are walking by faith, enjoying the rest that He offers, enjoying the, 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 the blessings of His Word. Jesus Himself is the Word, as described in, in chapter 1, verse 2. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus describes Himself that way, but also His written Word. And so, might we pursue Jesus, pursue an understanding of what He's given to us in this beautiful book that teaches us all that we need for life and godliness. Well, let's establish these patterns of walking in faith, grounding ourselves in God's word, and trusting in his promises to you who have believed and heard the gospel. Our time that we spend in God's written word is not something that, that we pursue as a legalistic chore. That, that would be a work. Some of us pursue daily devotions as if this is something that, oh, if I don't get it done, I, I'm, I'm going to get judged by God and. and I'm not going to experience His rest. I'm going to lose my salvation. And some of us have this legalistic idea that, that I have to get a certain schedule down. And if I don't, that God, we have this weird relationship with that. And there's others of us that pursue God's Word and we kind of see it like this good luck charm. If I just get my 15 minutes in, my day's going to go good. You ever hear, you ever say that? If I, if I just get my little time in, it's a good luck charm and it's God's way of you know, blessing my day. I'm not saying that you don't receive blessings from spending 15 minutes in God's Word. Do that. But it's but, but not this idea that it's my good luck charm and if I, if I do this work, that God will do this for me. The idea behind all of this as we spend time in God's Word is, is we listen to His voice. A- and I'm cultivating a relationship, a healthy relationship with God's Word. The person, Jesus Christ. I'm learning to love Him and devote myself to Him. This One who is greater than the angels. This One who is greater than Moses. This One who is greater than all the high priests of the Old Testament. He has a relationship with me. And I spend time in His Word. I spend time in prayer. I memorize this. I meditate on this. Because I want this relationship to grow and abound and to know Him even more. It's Him that we love. It's him that we serve it's him that we adore and so let us turn to his word to jesus christ to his instructions and in his written word and live our lives according to the principles that he puts before us today i invite you to join we're, we're starting over in mark uh, for those of you on the back of your sermon notes, we've been walking through the Gospels. And we started January 1st, I think, and, and we started with Mark. And, and I personally, I'm, just, I'm reading through the Gospels. And I'm just taking a few chapters each day. And my, my goal is just to love Jesus more. to Come to an understanding of who He is. And so we've finished all four Gospels in a couple months. And I think um, tomorrow is the last day in Matthew. Um, and then um, I'm going to start Mark over again. And we'll, we'll go through it again. And... and Look for those things that you missed the first time. Something that you read through the story and keep on observing, keep on listening. We have Sunday school. We're starting Second Peter today. Uh, Matt, you guys are in Malachi. We we don't put Sunday school here because there's some sort of legal requirement that you have to do Sunday school in order to get you know. I, I'm not going to stand at heaven with a, a pin that I'm gonna put on your robe. There's no trophy. That's not what all this is about. It's, just, it's about us coming to know Jesus better. And so we want to provide opportunities like Sunday school. That's why these guys spend time in the week studying these passages so that they're ready. That's why your small group leaders were studying um, Matthew in our small groups. Our small group leaders, they spend time studying that's Word so that they're prepared each week. Our men's Bible study. Our women's Bible studies. Those are there not, not because there's this you know, tradition So that we might know God's Word better and that we might walk in it together. And so take advantage of those opportunities. Take advantage of those opportunities individually that you might read His Word and devote yourself to this book because these are His words to you. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. The final Word, Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your written Word that You've preserved and passed down to us. We thank You that You call us. I thank You that today there are some here, perhaps, that You are calling and that Your Word is going forth to them today. And Father, my prayer is that they would respond in faith. That they would reject their sin and walk away from their sin, and they would turn to Jesus Christ and accept Him as the the final and full price for their sins might today they have Your rest. Lord, I pray that as we walk with Jesus, as we follow Him, that that rest would be clear to us in new ways this week. That we would benefit from all that it has for us. Glorify Yourself. Glorify Your Son in our lives. We look forward to walking with You this week. Amen.